0: that treat their animals in the best possible way and never give any added antibiotics or hormones. When you join, you choose your box and delivery frequency. You can cancel at any time without any penalty and ButcherBox delivers amazing and fresh meat right to your door in a 100% recyclable box. For a limited time only, get free chicken nuggets for a year and 10% off your first box when you sign up today and use the code WP. That's a 22-ounce bag of gluten-free organic chicken nuggets in every order for a year when you sign up at butcherbox.com forward slash WP and use the code WP.
1: Hey guys, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Captain James Nash of Six Ranch Outfitters in Northeast Oregon. We got into a bit of everything. When it comes to elk hunting, James is one of those guys that will leave you with some homework. Enjoy the episode. So we are on with Captain James Nash of Six Ranch Outfitters out of Oregon. And I'm going to break from my typical intro and say that uh, I was messaging with the gentleman and my naivety, um, and the lack of me being a uh, starstruck type of guy led me to be starstruck when I realized that, uh, I was speaking to the one and only captain James Nash. So James, <laughs> thanks for sitting down with me, man. I really appreciate your time. Um, you have a wealth of knowledge that I'm sure you're going to bring to the table. Want don't you take the floor man and give us some intro and background to the folks uh, who may have been in my position
2: first of all i want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to to be on your show i'm excited about your podcast and the and the direction you're going i feel like you're bringing a lot of honesty and, and asking some hard questions and it's fun for me to be a part of it uh yeah a, a little bit a little bit about me I grew up on, uh, on the Six Ranch, which is my family's ranch. We're located in Northeast Oregon, and I'm the fifth generation of my family to, to live here and raise cattle, which is about as deep as the history goes for the European settlers in this area. Um, I, I've, I've hunted, um, hunted and fished my entire life, and, and hunting, for me, didn't start out as recreation. It started out as a matter of function. And, and necessity, and, and fishing was, was a little bit more recreational, but it was much the same. I graduated from, from high school here. I spent a year in Europe um, going to college and, and, and wrestling, and then I went into uh, college in, in Montana, and I studied literature and writing and wildlife biology at Montana Western, and I went into the Marine Corps. I was a tank officer. And I uh, got out of the Marines after five years. And I was, I was medically retired. And uh, I, I came home and wasn't really able to do a lot of the ranching work that I'd, that I'd been doing most of my life. So I uh, started this outfitting business. And, and it's really done well. And that's where we're at today is is uh, spending spending time with with cattle on the ranch and then helping other landowners in the area with with wildlife related issues and then getting people out and trying to teach them how to hunt and fish.
1: Nice. So lit and bio, man, that's kind of a (laughs) that's opposite ends of the uh, of the spectrum, right? And not. Not something that most people would liken to an outdoors guy for, you know, whatever reason that we have those stereotypes. Um, yeah. You say
2: the it, road? <laughs> um, well, it's it's a matter of options. Right. So I'm I'm very, very bad at math. Um, so once once you realize that that road is closed to you, that that's not one of your strengths, it becomes very limiting in science. Because so much of science is straight up doing math. It's operating in spreadsheets and, and things like that. But with with literature, that opens up the entire world of the written word, which which gives you access to every type of information in a way that was more palatable for me.
1: So what what's funny, I'm sorry to cut you off. What's funny about that, though, is, is doing my homework and trolling, if you will, on you is you are a, I'm going to, I'm going to say it how I see it. You're a data geek, bro. (laughs) Right. I mean, you are collecting information um, as far as I know, like no other uh, outfitter or guide or anyone that I've heard. I mean, you're very analytic when it comes to studying your wildlife, managing it, the predator control, et cetera.
2: And I think that that's important. Uh, I I do really like to, like collecting data and then analyzing that data. And, you know, I, I find functions to be able to understand that. And I get a lot of help from people who are a lot smarter than me in order to do it. But it's the only way to really be honest, because if you just have evidence that's anecdotal, if, if it's, you know, your experience and you're trying to, you know, sort of tell a story about what you think happened, that opens it up to all kinds of fault. And what you'll end up with is information that's been tainted by your own emotions or experiences or perceptions. But when you collect data, then you have this hard set of information that you can bounce off of a couple different people uh, who have a really specific knowledge base, and then they can help you understand it and you can move forward and actually gain gain ground. You can get progress, you can understand what's happening. One of the things that, that I'm really excited about right now is I just got all my liver data back from last fall. So last year I took uh, soil samples, I took fecal samples, which was pretty gross, and I took vegetation samples at a couple different times throughout the year. Um, we, we took all that data and tried to understand basically what was available to the elk and to the mule deer in this specific area. Then when we killed bulls last fall, we took liver samples from all of them, took them down to the vet clinic at the end of the year. They bummed them off to a university and the liver tissue actually stores um, a history of their mineral content for like the previous nine months. So it's like a a library of what they've been eating. So we get that data back. We kind of build a data set that shows what's happening with these different bulls at different different ages and we killed a few different ages of bulls. I don't have my my tooth data back yet that'll sure enough tell me how old they were, but I guessed as best I can. So sent that off to a nutritionist. The nutritionist said, Well, oh, there's really nothing out there saying what an elk needs, but that's what we're trying to develop. They uh, they took their best guess and we built this mineral content, um, this custom mineral mix. It's for these elk in this area so that we can kind of improve their health. And when I tell people about what I'm doing, they're like, oh, so you're trying to grow big antlers? I'm like, no, not at all. That, that will come. You know, that's a matter of, of genetics and age class, and, and those things are more difficult to control. What I'm doing is making healthy cows, because if that cow is healthy, then while the calf is a fetus, it's getting all the minerals that need to be a strong fetus. And then it's going to be able to be born a little bit earlier. It's going to be able to grow faster. And so now we're looking at like the seven to 14 year plan for getting these elk where we need to be. But healthy cows makes healthy bulls. It's the bottom line.
1: And my point to that was that's as mathematical as you can get when you're starting to analyze and put data like that together. I mean, a spreadsheet is a spreadsheet is a spreadsheet, but I mean, the mathematics in, in analyzing all that is, is huge, man. Um, so I don't want to just skip over it. So you said you were retired from the service. Uh, thank you for your service. And I understand that that service was retired and decorated as well.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I was, I was lucky. Um, I, I, I did receive some, some accommodations and, um, I have two purple heart medals, which, which folks find interesting. I think it, it it's mostly indicative of the fact that it takes me more than one time of doing something wrong to learn my lesson.
1: <laughs> That's a big deal, man. I, we appreciate your service and uh, hats off to you, man.
2: Yeah, thank you for saying so.
1: Um, so let's talk a little bit about Six Ranch. Give us some some background on Six Ranch um, and your outfitting service there.
2: Well, the Six Ranch itself is, is a really interesting place it's it's beautiful we live at the base of this uh this incredible mountain wilderness area and we're kind of on a on a prairie that's adjacent to the to the valley at the base of this mountain the prairie is called Zumwalt and it is the largest intact grass prairie that's left in North America but it but it's still not all that big so you go 40 miles across this thing and it breaks off into a place called Hell's Canyon which is the deepest gorge in North America. So we go from this pristine alpine 10,000 foot wilderness area to this this big vast prairie and then we break off into, you know, the steepest country that our continent has to offer all within just a few miles of each other. It's it's an incredible place and I'm so fortunate to live here. And like I said, we've been here since 1884 raising cattle the entire time and we we were always grass-fed organic before those were ever even words, right? Because we have a short growing season here, so we can't grow corn, but we have, we have grass, we have wonderful grass. So that's what our, that's what our cattle ate. And then at some point it became cool for people to eat grass-fed organic beef. And everybody was trying to scramble to try and alter their operation to be able to, to fit into all this. And we're over here like, man, we've, been doing this for over over a century so uh yeah you want you want to eat this we're happy to sell it to you let's do it
1: how many acres you guys have there
2: well that's an interesting question and i'm um i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you right now that that's a really common thing for people to ask who are not part of the ag business but within within ranching that's considered to be um to be a, like a rude or invasive question. And I'm not offended. I'm just telling you. My apologies. <laughs> but no, no, not at all. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you because what happens is we have, we have generational ranchers who are what we say land rich and cash poor. So everything they have is in their property. So asking somebody how many acres they have is the equivalent of um, me asking you, you know, how much money you've got in your bank account after my
1: expenditures about ten dollars.
0: <laughs>
2: ten dollars and eleven cents. <laughs> that's it, man. That's it. No, we we run about six hundred head of cows. Um and we've got more horses than than I know at this point. And that's that's compounded by the fact that uh I'm the only guy on the ranch. It's me and my wife and um my mom and my little sister and the girls all have multiple names for these horses. So when I when I got back from the Marines, I'm listening to them talk. I'm like, how many of these stinking things do we have right now? We must have like 40 head of horses running around. It's not the case. I think we've got like I don't know 15. But uh, we we do a lot to try and try and reduce our carbon footprint, which is difficult on a ranch because there's a lot that uh, a diesel engine needs to do. But when we feed cows, which we feed about 120 days a year. Uh, We'll feed 100 ton uh, of hay each year. Uh, We do that with a team of of Belgian draft horses that pull a wagon. And, you know, we've got two feet of snow and change, more coming down today right now. And, you know, my mom is out there right now driving this team of horses and feeding down to 1,400-pound bale.
1: That's awesome, man. What a picture. Um, Yeah, I didn't mean to ask, you know, something that was – offensive i had no idea uh i guess the reason i was asking more so right is when people look at an outfitter and hunting private land or things of that nature um they're wondering how many acres they're they're going to be stepping on there so that was more my reason for that question
2: yeah no and that's it it's a great question so the hunting that we do is not on the Six ranch um we The, the hunting that, that I guide on is on a bunch of different ranches uh, that in, in their totality are around, I don't know, 150,000 acres, I guess. But no, the, the sixth ranch, we hunt on it as a family a little bit. And I really like to get, get kids and first-time hunters out here um, if, if that's appropriate. But we don't have any kind of trophy quality here. Uh, what we're doing with the wildlife here on the ranch is just trying to manage it for health. And one of the more interesting things we've done with that is that there's this river that goes through the ranch. It's called the Wallawa River, which flows out of the Walowa Mountains, and it uh, it's it's a it's a really beautiful small stream that goes anywhere from 100 cfs, you know, in the middle of August when it's really low water. To around uh, seven hundred cfs um, at cube—that's cubic, cubic feet, feet per second. Feet, right. Yeah, at, at high water um, in the springtime, so, so it's not huge. And but how, is that where you're guiding your fly fishing? I'm guiding a lot of fly fishing on that. Something historically that happened with this river is it goes through a valley through the middle of the ranch, and the valley's flat; it's all floodplain. And the river would change its, its course every year. And that made it impossible to put in a road or a railroad. And people were having to access the valley through all this really difficult and steep high country. So when the heavy equipment came home from World War II, they used it to straighten this river all the way through the valley. And it effectively ruined the fishing and the fish habitat. And we had, uh, we had silver salmon. We had sockeye salmon. We had king salmon we had steelhead, we had resident rainbow trout, we had bull trout. Now, of all those that I just listed, the only ones that haven't hit the endangered species list are the resident rainbow trout. And it's largely because of the habitat disruption. So when I was eight years old, I found some of these old river channels and asked what they were. And for me, it was as simple as looking at the ground and being like, man, if the water was over here, This would be better fishing, and that's when we started initiating this this big project. It took us um eighteen years to get the permits to be able to do it. But we we built a new river channel that mirrored um, untampered with river channels in the area. We we surveyed the ground, we engineered the river, we dug the channel out dry using all natural materials, and then we moved the water into it. And we turned a mile and a half of river into 2.3 miles of river and we did it in two phases and now the river through the entirety of the ranch has been restored to the best of our ability to be ideal habitat for trout salmon and steelhead of all ages and we had chinook salmon spawning in here two weeks after we moved the water and that had never happened before in my lifetime so it was a hugely successful project and now I get to take people trout fishing on it and I get to talk about what real world conservation looks like Mm -hmm. that's and and i'm wowed by that right
1: that's a big deal i mean to have that insight at an early age um is is crazy right to even think of but to actually take action on it and and fight it for 18 years because i'm sure it was an uphill battle
2: well somebody's entire career that was basically dedicated to preventing us from getting the permits we needed to improve habitat and it's it's such a struggle but since we were successful at it now other ranchers in the area are are doing projects of their own and we're restoring more and more of the river it's wonderful it's kicking ass
1: that's awesome now do the people that were fighting it now they see the value in it i would hope
2: well, they saw the value in it before. I won't say that they didn't, but there's, there's a lot of fear in taking a, an excavator and a bulldozer and running it into a river that has a, a, a very few number of, of an endangered species, even if that is the tool that you need to use to create habitat for that species. You know, so it's like it's like the alma thing. You got to break an egg. So, did we run over some some endangered um, Chinook salmon eggs in order to be able to conduct this project? Maybe, but now we have sixty Chinook that can can utilize the section of the river, and we've got twenty five different steelhead reds, and and our trout population is more robust, and the bull trout are coming back. It's just it's something that you have to do, and in actual conservation, in the function of it, often looks ugly.
1: Especially when and then you've it gets had better. Hands on it for so dang long. So that's what. And we have. Yeah. It puzzles me, right? Yeah. Is you look at it from that from that standpoint, where they say, "Oh no, we can't touch it." Well, you touched it in the first place. That's why it's in the condition it is. So now you want to be hands off and leave it alone. It just it it doesn't make any sense.
2: A lot of people have this notion that the ecosystem is something that only occurs outside of their home or outside of where, where humans live and interact and that it can be contained like a, like a terrarium and that they can control everything. And if they get it just right, then there will be balance. And I hear people talk about balance in nature all the time. Like the teeter-totter never sits still. It's always moving. This is a fluid environment and we're part of it. Like the ecosystem is the entire surface of the planet. And and there's no such thing as balance. And once we've manipulated it once, we have to continue doing that. And we just have to act with the best information that we can all the time.
1: Yeah, that's a, That is a true and perfect statement, man. Absolutely. Um, so one of the things that I noticed about Six Ranch, right, that that stood out to me was teaching clients to hunt versus, hey, here's your elk. Right. The importance of that uh, in, in your eyes, because that's a big deal to me, man, is, is getting guys, new guys, you know, or guys that are partially seasoned um, in the elk game. Um, or any hunting for that matter? What's Why teaching instead of just taking them out and saying, this is what you paid for, go after it?
2: I started guiding when I was 14 years old. And I had some, some great lessons at an early age, both in ways to do things and how to not do things. And when I was young, I thought that my job was to do everything for the client. And at some point I started to realize that I was doing them a disservice by that. And there, I think, I don't know the specific time that it occurred, but I remember, you know, feeling tired or lazy or I was hurt, something was going on. And I, I asked some guys to go saddle their own horses and they didn't know how. Um, And they said, well, that's, that's great. But, we don't know how will you show us? I was like, yeah, for sure. And it was like this light bulb that they were then participating in their own adventure in a way that was going to be more meaningful for them. And even while we were doing it, I could see them in the future talking about how they saddled their own horses and, and what a big deal that might've been. And then in some of the other guiding I've done, especially whitewater, We do these multi-day whitewater trips and and there there were times when we would do absolutely everything for the clients and then we started getting them involved and having them help pack the boats and do dishes and help us cook dinner. And it didn't make our lives easier. Like they don't know what they're doing. It's inefficient. You have to do stuff multiple times, but they loved it. So I carried that into my my guiding principles with, with fly fishing and and, you know, all the fishing and all the hunting that we do and, and realize that if I want to have a positive impact on this sport as a whole, then I need to get people to a point where they can go out and do this without me. And if I'm doing things for them, uh, that they're unaware of, then I, I'm maybe doing them a disservice.
1: That, uh, so that's, and in, in, I'm sure you've heard a couple of the podcasts, Um, but that's a big deal, man. And, and I'm huge on the experience, right? I mean, you know, bone on the wall or, you know, having a, having a picture is only a small part of that. So that's a big deal, man, is, you know, taking a guy, some people would think, oh, that's kind of counterintuitive of an outfitter to do that. Um, you know, you're setting a client up, um, to maybe never come back, but I think people would be more apt to jump back on board. Um, if they're getting that kind of, that kind of experience and lesson, that's a big deal, man. Hats off to you on that one.
2: Well, thank you. You know, if, if they never come back and they continue hunting, that's a success, not only for me, but for that individual and for the, for the industry as a whole. But for the most part, once people realize that they know a little bit, they begin to understand how much more there is to know. And they'll, they'll start looking for resources. And if they had a positive experience in learning with me, then they're going to continue using me as a resource. And whether that's writing me an Instagram message or giving me a phone call or coming back and, and going hunting and fishing again, uh, I don't really care. As long as they, they stay involved and, and, and stay with it, we're all winning.
1: I love it. Um. So, 2018. How did your season, uh, with, uh, your for yourself and your clients go?
2: We had we had a great season. Uh, I hunted every day of archery season except for the last day um, because everybody was tagged out, including myself. I got an hour and a half to hunt myself, and I went out and killed a, a five point bull. Uh, it was the third bull we called in that night, and it was kind of a a a good bull to to take out of the area he was a three and a half year old bull that was a little bit smaller than the other two three and a half year old bulls he was with and he barked at me which pissed me off so i killed him
1: (laughs) in an hour and a half man people are dropping their heads right now going all shit
2: (laughs) but i was i was pretty tuned up yeah i was pretty tuned in i called in 60 bulls this year that were killable bulls and it was it was great i think we ended up killing uh Now I know we're supposed to say harvest in California, but these aren't root, (laughs) these aren't root vegetables out here. They're, uh, they're sentient animals and I, I don't want to mince words or you hide behind euphemisms. So, you know, we, uh, we, we hunted and, and killed, uh, 22 deer and 17 elk, um, of which 12 were bulls, um, And two of those were with a rifle and the rest were with, with archery tackle.
1: So any private versus public in that instance, right? I mean, that's a lot of bulls. That's a lot of animals period. Um, You know, and, and some folks may say, well, it's private land, right? It means less, but these are free roaming in and off of public and private. Um, does that make it any easier or, or lessen, uh, the fact that we're laying those bulls down?
2: No, I, I don't think so at all. The, the private-public debate is absolutely hilarious in my mind because anybody who's hunted both doesn't debate that anymore. But people who have only hunted public seem to have this notion that private land is, is just a layup, and that is not the case at all. It's, it's still the same animal, and if they walk a mile, they're on public land. And it's not like this is high fence; it's three strand barbed wire. You know, they don't even have to lift their chest off the ground to jump over it. So, now, elk don't change um, whether they're on public ground or, or or private ground. And my experience doesn't change at all. Uh, and I I don't feel more pride about shooting something on public than I do on private. From a business standpoint, if I want to operate my business on public land. I have to buy a special use permit from the federal agency that manages that land. Around here, it's mostly Forest Service. And there's only one outfitter per area. And these areas can be tremendous. They can be over 100,000 acres. It costs about a quarter million dollars for me to buy one of those permits because I have to buy the entire business of the person who's operating out there now. Whereas if I guide on private land, I just have to have my. Outfitter guide license and everything that goes with owning a business and a good relationship with that landowner. So for me, it makes no sense at all to guide on public land when economically it just doesn't pencil.
1: And I think a lot of that argument too is the ability to gain access or the ability to say, hey, I'm going with an outfitter. And we're, and I'm going to jump right into this stuff, man. Um, we're kind of our own worst enemies uh, when it comes to the divide, right, of, of these user groups, if you will. Um, we, we just like to beat the crap out of each other. Hunting is hunting, right? I mean, we're, we're all out there chasing the same thing. Whatever your reason is, um, you know, that's your reason. But it, at the end of the day, it's the same drive or passion, however you want to look at it that gets us out there i don't i don't get the divide where where do you where do you stand on all that
2: i think people just want to belong to a tribe and other people want to try to to develop fears to attract people to their own tribe like the fear that public land is going to go away and that people are no longer going to have access and and with that there's another fear that's developed that you can't have access to private land. And nothing could be farther from the truth. If you show up to a ranch in Eastern Oregon with you know, a roll of barbed wire and some pliers and a fence stretcher in your hands in the summertime and say, hey, notice uh, you've got some elk damage around here, you've got some fence down, I would really enjoy hunting elk and I'd happily fix your fence to have that privilege. Guys will say, hell yeah, stay at my house. Let me introduce you to my daughter. Here's an apple pie. (laughs) Yeah, go shoot that one. Bring your buddies back and shoot the three that are next to it because they're a competing resource. Uh, And and fence is huge. And fence gets brought up quite a bit. But let me just uh, break it down for you a little bit in case people have not had the privilege of building barbed wire fence. It sucks to build, you get cut every minute of the day that you're doing it, and it costs $10,000 per mile. When a herd of elk runs through fence, they will take down a quarter mile of fence every time they do that. So that's
1: a $2,500 opportunity or investment for you to go hunt some private in northeastern Oregon.
2: Absolutely. And then you can go back out there with, you know, $150 worth of material and donate your time and your labor and some compassion for what that landowner has done to, to provide habitat for that species that you care so much about. And all of a sudden you've got a relationship. You've got a friend with somebody who's probably a salt of the earth person who's had calluses on their hands since they were seven years old.
1: that's uh yeah, that's eye opening. I know for me,
2: private land. Yeah. Private land isn't, isn't at all exclusive. They're, they're just human beings and you just have to offer something in return as a landowner. When, when I get frustrated, it's when people feel like they're entitled to, to hunt here. And, and I've had people come up and, and ask to hunt and they're like, I'm sorry. You know, my, my wife has a tag. We're going to go out a little bit later. And they get mad, or if I'm, you know, if I've already given access to to some little kid who's out on their first hunt and they're trying to shoot a white-tailed doe, and you know, a 33-year-old guy rolls in here and gets upset that I've that I'm not going to let him hunt. It's like no, I'm not. Um, And and they're they're not entitled to that. And it's obvious that that what I have with with wildlife living in a place where where people can go out and hunt them has value. And there's value to the hunter. And that's why they're asking for that. But for whatever reason, a lot of people ask without offering anything in exchange. And I'm not asking for money. I'm not asking for for anything at all. But just recognize the fact that, that I'm making my money on cattle that turn grass into protein. And all the un- other ungulates that live here are also eating that grass, and that is in direct competition with what the cattle are doing. Now, on this ranch, we care a great deal about wildlife and about sure enough conservation, and, and we put a lot of our effort into that. But other places, you know, they're they're maybe having a harder time, and and they need every bite of grass that they can get so that they can make it to the next year.
1: So that it kind of brings me back to a few minutes ago that public versus private um, and and you mentioned right the the loss of the private or, or excuse me the loss of the public so I think some of that entitlement might go into or play into the fact that guys you know say hey you got X amount of acres landlocked right um, and I can't get to them do you think that that's where some of that comes from because there's there's a lot of misconceptions Um, in in the public versus private and and i'm not an expert near an expert on that on that subject matter but it seems to be that that would be why that sense of entitlement maybe
2: i don't know you know the the cases where where private locks out public is quite a bit less common than what a lot of people might imagine and what, what I often see, like there, there is a ranch, um, nearby that runs along the base of the mountains. And it's, it's a pretty good sized place. I think it's about, uh, you know, 9,000 acres, something like that. And there's a lot of people around that are upset that the landowner won't let them go through that property to, to hunt on the other side or to hike on the other side. But he doesn't block off the public land. You could go around. It's just harder. And that's often the case where there is there is another way to access that public land, but it's maybe not as convenient. And then, you know, people get upset. I I just don't know. I just don't know. We have um Do you know how much how much public land we have in the US?
1: Oh, no. I have no idea. It's it's Yeah, millions and millions of acres. That's not a number that I've ever delved into.
2: I think it's 600 million. So there, there's some clubs out there that would lead you to believe that there's a scarcity in public land and and that there's a threat that it's going to go away. But I, I just don't know how true that really is.
1: And it's funny that, and and just a little tangent, but it's funny that, especially now with this d i y uh, on your on your back camp, you know, pack in guys that they're looking for that that easy access, right? I mean, that's a that's a huge a huge thing over the last couple of years where guys are packing you know, or wanting to pack in or talking about packing in you know, to an area that's twenty miles in. But then you know we're trying to access it. And I guarantee you that's a percentage of it, no offense to anyone. But I guarantee you a percentage of that is hey, look, we don't have to pack the 20 miles, we could pack, you know, 10 and get in from this point. So
2: and I want to speak to that if if you'll give me just a second for some of your listeners. Yes, sir. There there's a misconception about, and I'll just speak about elk hunting because that's what I know the very best. There's a misconception about elk hunting. Cub or hike in 20 miles or or hire somebody that has a pack string to take you to the these most remote places and that it's got to be this this 10-day long thing that's super expensive and exhausting. Folks, that's just not the case. I mean, there there's basically two classes of people out there right, as far as hunting is concerned. And one class of people doesn't go very far from their truck. And let's say that that's a mile. And if if somebody who primarily hunts from their vehicle makes it a mile from their rig, more than likely they're turning around and heading back because they're it's just not their game. And then the other person is a person who's capable and willing and interested in bombing twenty miles deep. What that leaves is this zone of one to three miles deep that elk are perfectly comfortable operating and living in and you can hunt that in an afternoon and and you know hike back out in the dark and it's no big deal and people who are who are physically less capable or they don't have as much time or they don't have as much money to invest in this into it just know that that there there's a light duty elk hunt that can be very accessible for you you can make it and you know if Gosh, I, I've I've hired. I do a lot with with wounded veterans because as a wounded veteran myself, hunting has been incredibly important. I've had guys with you know one leg that that make it into elk on a regular basis. Like so, what what's your excuse? You know, you can do it,
1: right? But the, and and there goes some of the some of the divide, right? The the user group thing, right? It's are, are you actually after elk? Are you seeking uh, a, a deeper experience by packing, you know, that far in? Or are you just doing it because it seems to be the big talk right now? That's what kills me about it.
2: Right. And, and that's an interesting point. And I won't, I won't criticize anybody for going out and speaking uh, that if that's the experience that they want. You know, if what they're trying to get out of hunting is a 40 mile hike then then I hope that they achieve that by hiking 40 miles but if they with what they want to get out of hunting is is a killable experience with an animal then uh, I just need them to know that that you don't have to hike 20 miles to eat to do that
1: yeah because you can hunt them like you said right you got the the from the road into that 20 miles. I mean, there's hunting and all that. So does it matter if you made it 20 miles? I mean, that, that seems like a personal quest. I mean, you could go backpack for something like that. Uh, I can't imagine. Exactly. Pack a, exactly. <laughs> packing an elk out, you know, 20 miles, man. That. Yeah. I, you're not getting them out at once. Um, so you're talking. No, about it's hard. Three, four trips, <laughs> 20 miles, 60 to 80 miles. No, I'm not, I'm not that guy, man. <laughs>
2: no it and it, if you're if you're being responsible there are four man loads on one bull elk um i've i've split a bull in half and i've carried out half of a bull a couple times and uh i always regret it <laughs> i would rather make, make that distance multiple times than carry that amount of weight cuz it, it's just too hard on your body it's too much weight but and
1: there has to be a point in that 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 a guy looks at it and and is absolutely regretting that third trip in. That's a long haul.
2: Yeah, it is. And and some people find a lot of a lot of satisfaction in a big pack out. I remember as a kid going into the back country one time, and I saw a guy packing a packing a raghorn bull just just antlers out. And this guy was smoked and he was coming out of a pretty tough part of the wilderness. And I say, congratulations on your bull. That's awesome. And uh, he goes, this is the last load. And I was so proud of him because um, it was evident that, uh, that he, was, he was incredibly proud of his elk and, and that those antlers were going to be really meaningful. But he'd gotten his meat out first. And from an ethics standpoint, that's critical. Yeah, absolutely. So, critical. I, I was a little kid. I was, you know, eleven or twelve years old at that point, and I hope I remember that forever because it, it was huge. It was super meaningful to see that guy doing that. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, that's a big deal, right? I mean, how many how many quarters are in bags hanging up in a tree that got left there because of that scenario? And I'm not sure that people really focus on that, especially with a lot of the a lot of the hype behind it. I don't know that people are thinking along those lines when they're, when they're venturing that deep, I mean, 20 miles is something, but I mean, even five or six miles, you know, if you're, if you're solo, that's, that's still some, some boot time, man.
2: Well, and it, and it really depends on the miles, you know, like this country around here, there's, there's places that a mile is a day. and and if you're if you've got heavy weight on, it might be more than one day. So here's another thing. If if somebody's listening to this and they're like, you know what? I'm gonna be that guy. I'm going deep. And they go in there and then you know they wake up and a bull runs out in the meadow that they're in and looks at them and they shoot it and they're like, Oh snap, what do I do now? It's 90 degrees. Um I I'm in trouble. If you get those quarters hanging. In a shade, I don't care if it's 90 degrees. They'll be cool to the touch, and you've got a few days. You've got a few days. And a lot of people think that that meat is going to spoil immediately. It is not the case. There's so much water in them that they'll just keep evaporating, keep evaporating, and it'll develop a bark around the outside of them, and you're going to be okay. You can get that meat out.
1: And that, Yeah, and that's a, a, a misconception, if you will, right, that – A lot of us, I mean, I've worried about it, you know, just on, on a deer, right. Uh, Looking at the terrain I have to cover, say, okay, it's going to be two trips. And uh, that's a big concern. So I'm trying to beat feet and get back to, you know, back to the base camp or the truck or whatever to get it on, you know, get back on ice and, and running like crazy.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, just get some air moving around it and keep the sun off of it and you can buy yourself a lot of time. Another trick, another power play in the backcountry, say you're in there with a buddy and you've you've got an animal killed and you wanna keep going, hang it up at night, and then in the morning, when you take off to go hunt for the day, pull those quarters down and put them in your sleeping bag. And they'll stay the same temperature as they were all night because your sleeping bag will also help keep them cool. And then when it gets cool again in the evening, Yard them back out and uh, and get them back in the tree. Don't do that in grizzly bear country. That's probably a stupid idea if you're in bear country. But it's uh, it's something that can be really helpful.
1: I don't know about that with lions running around. <laughs> that would have me worried. Oh, about lions
2: too. <laughs> oh, they don't mean any harm. Yeah, they I mean, don't.
0: <laughs>
2: lions are letting themselves get strangled to death by dudes that wear skinny jeans in Colorado, I something, something just. Man that's crazy that guy's my hero (laughs) i'm so
1: proud of him he choked out a mountain lion dude that i mean that's that's beyond epic man that is just crazy I saw that and I was like, oh, this is some BS story coming down the pike. And (laughs) there was no press release or anything. I think it went almost two weeks or so before the guy even started talking about it. And then to see that little dude, I was like, oh, man, that's something. The mountain lion weighed as much as him because they were saying, oh, it was an 80 pound lion. And I'm thinking, this had to have been a big dude. But that guy was what, maybe a buck 50, a buck 60?
2: I don't know, I don't know, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try and slip up on him when he's jogging. Man, It'll, <laughs> he'll mess me
1: up. That's a badass right there, man. That's too funny, too funny. Um, so going back to the meat care, man. Um, game bags. Um, to me, they're yeah. a big deal, right? I mean, it it just offers that protection. Um, keeps the dirt off of them, keeps the bugs off of them. Are you a big game bag guy in that scenario? Or I've seen a lot of guys go in. And I'm always kind of awestruck, you know, and they got one game bag or no game bags. And I'm going, what in the hell? Or, you know, just a just a heavy trash bag, like a contractor bag. And you're just not getting that airflow.
2: Yeah, if, if you're using a plastic bag, you've got to get them out immediately because the plastic will insulate them and it won't let any of that liquid come out. And you can it's the absolute quickest way to rot meat is in a black plastic bag when it's hot outside but i really like game bags um they're they're expensive and you're basically paying for strength and weight uh if you want a way out of it you can use uh pillowcases work just fine um and burlap sacks actually work really well too uh i get a lot of elk out whole um because my uh because my I've got a hurt back. So I can't really pack stuff all that well anymore. Uh, so I've developed mechanisms for getting elk out whole and there, there are these burlap wool bags that they use for packing sheep's wool into, and you can fit a whole elk in one and they're like $4 from a wool supply company and they will, they'll last a long time. So if, if you're in a place where you can get deer or hogs or elk out whole, those wool bags are sweet. And if, uh, if you're in a place that's hot and you need to hang it up, then just put the bottom of the bag in a bucket with some water and it will wick that water up and it will cool off your animal, um, on a very hot day as well.
1: I mean, one of the things, I mean, if we're going in, right, the money we spend on gear, we, we need to be looking at protecting our harvest or our kill. Um, I'm not going to skimp on game bags. I, I think it's invaluable. Like I use the caribou gear, and uh, those are like, great,
2: great, great bags.
1: Yeah. 60, 70 bucks. But man, I looking at the potential to, you know, waste that meat, there's no way I'm going to skimp on something like that. You know, so 40 no, dollars to a hundred bucks, seems like it's worth its weight in gold to me.
2: Yeah. No, the, the, the four the full four, $4 bag is to keep at home for getting an animal at home, but for packing get get good bags. Cause they don't take up as much space. They're lighter, they're stronger. And they do a really good job, really, really good job. I, I don't know. I, I am a fan. There's some features that I look for on game bags, too. And one of the biggest things, and I'll never get a backpacking game bag without a reflective strip on it. Because this, this is what's happened to me enough times that I'm never going to let it happen again. I go in, and either I'm looking for my buddy who killed something, he's got some stuff hanging, and I can't find him. Or this is the, this is the one that really frustrates me is I've hunted, you know, all day, however many days we get it done, we get bags hanging, we make the first trip out and we forget to GPS the point. And we come back in in the dark and you just dumb around in the woods when you're exhausted and dehydrated and, and you can't find them. But those reflective strips you can see from across the Canyon and you can see where your buddy is when he's packing out, um, cause he's you know ahead of me for sure but <laughs> uh, uh yeah reflective strips on on game bags and i think that the caribou bags have those right yeah, yeah i those yeah.
1: they're absolute uh, they're the best right and i mean you want to talk about a, i don't want to pump too much into that but you want to talk about a le- long-term value i mean you're talking 60 to 80 dollars um for elk size and that's i think they give you like in the pack there's probably i think it's four quarter bags and one loose meat bag and it does everything i need to do i get home i wash them i package them back up and they're in my pack for the next i think i've been on the same ones for six seasons yeah you know at 60 bucks that's ten dollars a year
2: that's that's great value you're absolutely right
1: i i it just trips me out that people you know will spend fifteen hundred dollars on a bow or you know two thousand dollars on on technical camo and another thousand bucks on a bino and then we're going to skimp or not think about it and you know, risk that kill spoiling. It just doesn't make that's, any damn sense to me.
2: That's where I'm at with broadheads. <laughs> oh my gosh, people don't understand broadheads or how important they are, and they, they buy these orange sticker broadheads from freaking Walmart. It's like, dude, every part of your system, everything you had, your truck to get you there, your backpack to carry all this stuff, your boots, your camo to hide you, Every single thing was just about getting that broadhead inside of an animal's chest.
1: And you want to buy like $13 for three.
2: Yeah, don't do that. They don't work very well. And you're, yeah, a, just,
1: you're a single just bevel insane. guy, correct?
2: Single bevel, single blade, single piece of metal. No moving parts, no screws. Um, don't Don't let there be anything that can go wrong. And I shoot heavy arrows and I shoot heavy bows and I'm not at all concerned about speed because I have a basic understanding of physics.
1: So why why the single bevel?
2: Single bevel does a handful of things for you. And thank you for asking because this this is something that I care a lot about. Um, A single bevel, for folks who don't know, uh, means that only one side of the blade is angled. So you have a flat side and an angled side. And it's going to be different from left and right. So the left side is going to be on top. The right side is going to be on the bottom is where it's angled. And what, that, what happens is when that hits a surface, it creates torque. And torque is any type of force which tends to cause rotation. And that's important because as your arrow is flying, it's rotating because your veins have helical. Even a straight-veined arrow will be rotating in flight because without rotation, you lose stability. It would be like trying to throw a Frisbee without spinning it. It's not going to go anywhere. So we're getting better arrow flight because the broadhead isn't fighting the veins, so your arrow is stabilized more quickly. Then it hits an animal, and instead of the blades having a rotational force in flight that now has to stop in order to penetrate, that rotation continues. And then when it hits bone or sinew or another hard surface, that torque creates a cavity in that bone that allows the arrow to pass through. And the penetration you get from a single bevel broadhead is superior to any other penetration. And it, it's very, very important to have holes in both sides of an animal. And it's very important that your arrow doesn't stop or deflect if it hits a bone. Because if that happens, even if you had picked a good spot to hit on that animal, you no longer have control of the direction of the arrow.
1: So, you said heavy. We get a lot of IBO marketing, <laughs> right? 330s yeah. And I've seen it go up oh my gosh I can't remember when I when I first started hunting I'm gonna say I'm gonna say IBO ratings were in the 270 to 280 range and now I'm seeing them shit I think I've seen them as high as 340 right um so everything has been speed 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 you know you don't want them and okay so I'm a we, we hear a lot of jumping the string, right? And I'm I have a different opinion of of what's going on with that. And I've witnessed certain things that I, that that make me believe that they're not actually jumping the string. Um, so when it comes to speed, you I, I think it's missed just a lot, you know, with the marketing, right? Yeah, who who doesn't want the faster bow? Who you know, this bow is this much faster this year. It, it doesn't matter. I shoot about about 283 right now um i'm using 125 grains up front um and my arrow i want to say is just below 500 i just switched arrows so i got some some homework to do uh, okay but so as far as speed what's your opinion of that if you're shooting a heavier arrow you're probably on the lower ester of of some of these ibo's um, I'm going to say, you know, 283 for me has seemed to work on just about everything that, that I've shot an arrow at from black tail to white tail to elk. What's your, what's your take on the speeds there?
2: Speed, speed is super important, but just so that people understand what IBO is, um, it is an international standard for measuring, um, measuring a bow's capability to produce an arrow speed. But what they do in order to achieve it is they take a seventy a seventy pound bow with a three hundred and fifty grain arrow, and that means that there's five grains of arrow weight per pound of draw weight. But they go to the maximum draw length that that bow's model is capable of. So if I'm shooting 28 inch draw length, you know that's that's pretty standard uh, like that's an average draw length. My bow, when they told me the IBO speed, it was shooting a 32-inch draw length at 70 pounds with a 350-grain arrow. And the only reason they don't go lighter than that is if you go any lighter than five grains per pound, then you risk damage in the bow. It's like dry firing, right? So if you see that the new Matthews shoots 340 feet per second IBO, that doesn't mean that you can achieve that. And if you actually you know, build an arrow that you can hunt with and you go shoot it through a chronograph at 28 inches and you're both shooting 290. You're like, what the hell? They lied to me. Like, no, they didn't, they didn't lie. You just didn't understand. 280 feet per second for me is the speed limit. So you're, you're, I'm going to give you a ticket for going three feet per second over. Um, (laughs) and the, the reason is, is sound. Sound is traveling um, depending on your elevation at around 1,100 feet per second. So no matter what, they heard your bow go off before your arrow got there, okay? So everybody's with me so far. Um, The difference between 280 and 340 in the amount of time that it took an arrow to reach an animal, the actual amount of time difference is super small and it's not enough to matter when an animal is is jumping the string is is. you know is the terminology they're not at all jumping the string because an animal's reaction to a sudden sound in the woods is not to drop their body 12 inches and then spring away from it if you snap a twig if you do anything i don't care if you record If you don't believe me, record your bow going off on your phone and go out next to a deer and then play it and see what they do. And it is not going to be the same reaction as they get when you shoot at them. What they're reacting to is the sound of an arrow moving towards them. And when an object is moving towards you, um, the pitch of that sound is changing. And that's called the Doppler effect. So if you're standing on, on the road and a truck is driving towards you, and then it passes you that sound changes radically and you can tell the sound of something coming towards you versus this is a sound of something going away from you because the tone has changed. Well, a deer or an elk or a bunny or anything like they've had stuff come towards them before and they understand that as well instinctively. If you have a broadhead that has events in it, um, like most of these do that are a hundred grains and they have the throwaway blades and stuff. Um, Those vents have air passing through them and it's causing turbulence and and that turbulence is presenting as sound. Um, If you have a solid broadhead, then it has less turbulence and therefore is making less sound. So that's another advantage of having a solid single bevel broadhead. But in order to get a, a broadhead strong enough that it doesn't just immediately disintegrate when it hits a mosquito on the way to your elk, you have to cut some stuff out of those blades if you want it to be a hundred grains. And that's why these these more sturdy broadheads are heavier than that because they have to be in, in order to uh, in order to be strong.
1: So what grain weight are you up front with on your broadhead?
2: Um I shoot 175 grain broadhead uh, the broadheads I shoot are called Cayugas, and they're made in Australia. They're they're really awesome, and they're not that expensive. Uh, they're around ten bucks a piece. Our exchange rate with Australia is really good right now, so the US kind of has an advantage there. Uh, and then my total my total arrow weight is six hundred and thirty two grains, um, and I'm shooting an eighty pound bow, and it drives it at just over two hundred and sixty feet per second and since i've been doing that i've got complete pass-throughs on every animal i've shot um to include a white-tailed buck that i shot through the front shoulder and it came out through his pelvis and it dropped him like a lead balloon you would have thought he'd been hit with a 300 wind mag i've shot um bull elk through through both shoulders uh and and then, you know, everything, everything that I shoot with this system dies where I can see it. It's just wonderful. You know, I don't, I don't have to track stuff anymore So and I don't have to worry about shot angle.
1: 260 feet per second. So you're, so you're actually schooling me here because I would look at 260 feet per second and, and I'd be worried, I guess it is minimal though. If you, if you do the mathematics, um, I would be worried about them jumping, you know, air quotes, the string, right? That Doppler effect, because we're in line with that, with that train of thought. I don't, I know that they're not jumping the string and they're, they're, you know, hearing that arrow come up. I couldn't drop the science on it like you just did, but, um, 260 feet per second. When we look at it, you are almost hundred feet per second under the, some of the high end bows with the IBO marketing that we're seeing.
2: Yeah, I am. A lot of what drove the speed was a time period when we started to develop the technology to shoot a faster bow and have a lighter arrow, and rangefinders weren't readily available. And part of what has changed is that now everybody can afford a rangefinder and they carry one, and people rangefind targets before they shoot. And now we have this really kick ass Garmin site that ranges while you're at full draw so trajectory is gone we don't care about trajectory because it's known it doesn't matter that an arrow drops a little bit more because we can compensate for that with our sight and you're going to do that anyways like you can't use your 20 yard pin on a 40 yard animal it just doesn't work like that so since we're already compensating what does it matter to you if that pin is slightly farther away from your your 30 yard pin it's no big deal But it's not the sound of the bow. It's the sound of the arrow. And the slower your arrow is going, the less noise it's gonna make. And the less frightening it's gonna be to that animal.
1: Makes sense hearing it that way. And and you know, I've never heard it put that way. That's uh <laughs> that's an eye opener, man. That's pearls right there. Well don't there. don't don't take my word
2: for it. Just go try
1: it. Oh no, I, I and then and that's one thing I'm good at. Right. But but just the thought process, right, is uh, it, it's sound, sound, sound. Um, so y'all yeah, have to check that out, because I actually started with this elk adventure last year and uh, jumped into some broadheads that are vented. And uh, that was uh-huh. one of the first things I noticed, man. I, I was like, OK, you know, everything about them is great. This is what I'm looking for. And uh, shot him. And the first time I shot him, I go, shit, that's loud, man. Oh, and I was I was super concerned with with the sound.
2: Yeah, no, it's it sounds like a fighter jet going through the air. Oh, it's crazy. It is crazy.
1: And I recently started, you know, looking at the solid single bevels and to see I'm big on watching my arrow in flight, right? So that bow stays up in front, man. I'm not trying to peek around it or drop my hand too fast. And I'm and I think it's been just because I've been shooting as long as I have. To see the difference in the amount of rotation, um, yeah, going from that from that double bevel to the single bevel was phenomenal, and I was just like, "Oh my goodness, man!"
2: And when you pull the single bevel out of the target, you have to twist it in the opposite direction. Yes, um, yes, yeah, and you you can absolutely feel all the rotation that's occurring as it go, as it's going in there, which you don't even
1: think about, right? I mean, I've I've shot mechanicals, um, I for years. Um, and, and earlier on in, in my archery, it was, uh, looking for, for flight, right? It was looking for better flight, a, a way to ease, you know, re retuning the bow to the broadhead. So I went with the mechanical, just trying to match up the flight of the field points. But now with some of the technology and time and science that these guys are putting into manufacturing these broadheads, uh, the last two, let's see, I just got the kudos and then I have two more broadheads that I've been testing out to see how I like and uh, I've made very little adjustment from field points to any three of these that I'm looking at here right now it's amazing
2: well I'll, I'll give you another example so the the nine bulls that that I personally guided to archery success this year a hundred percent of the guys who shot single bevels had 100 percent pass throughs and a hundred percent of the guys who did not shoot single bevels did not get pass throughs. And that's what kind of yardage are we talking? Varying yardages, you know, everything from from fifty yards to seventeen yards. But the the point is that is that it works, and you've you've got to trust you've got to trust guides. Like I have nothing to gain by telling somebody information that is going to leave wounded elk in the woods. I have nothing to gain from that. I have everything to gain from telling people information that's going to make them more successful out there and to be able to to kill these animals in ways that they can, you know, end the animal's life in the most efficient and and quick way possible and then get that meat home to their family so that they can enjoy it and they can bring this whole experience together and have satisfaction in as many aspects of it as possible.
1: And that's what's nice about all these platforms that are in front of us is that we can go get this information and not have to go through trial and error. And some of that trial and error, unfortunately, is an animal that you'll never recover because, you know, you didn't have that knowledge behind it. Right. You're, you're trying out that, you know, orange sticker tag broadhead, man. So it's invaluable to be able to listen to a podcast or turn on YouTube and, and get those pearls, man. That's a big deal.
2: These resources are so important, and and some people utilize them for good. Other people utilize them for evil, <laughs> and you know that, that's a decision you're going to have to make. But access to information is greater now than it's ever been.
1: So with that being said, uh, I'm going to rabbit hole this real quick, man. You posted the other day, and as much as I appreciated the picture of the post, in the post rather, um, the message was – far greater than what we're seeing out there, right? So you got uh, a spinning reel on a river, cowboy hat, and some Daisy Dukes, <laughs> man. Um,
2: oh, yeah. So yeah.
1: I'm going to read that post, right? It, it, and um, it says, I get it, I do, but this isn't a fair representation of women in the outdoors. We are at a stage in social media influence where the way someone looks is more powerful than their skill. This is unacceptable. And, and it goes in to talk about your, your work with some women's week of fly fishing. So it's a big deal for me, man. And I always equate this type of stuff to my wife, who I love with all my heart, and my daughter. Um, I, it drives me apeshit. I'm not going to sugarcoat it at all. It is a piss-poor representation of what women are capable of in the outdoors. I know tons that are out there just killing it, the same as men. Uh, but I'm sure as shit not gonna double tap on a picture of James Nash uh, with his ass hanging out on the river, man.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would ho- I would hope that you wouldn't. I, would I am from
1: California, running. so if you did, you know, if you had your questions, man, I just answered it there. But how? Yeah. It, well, you know, <laughs> how is it that we're at this state, man? How is it, how important is it for us as outdoorsmen? Uh, and I'm not going to say outdoors women, but I, I want to first focus on outdoorsmen to break this bullshit stereotype down.
2: It's critical, and I think, you know, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give models a hard time, and if if that's your thing, that's your thing, and and that's great, and I have as much appreciation for for a picture of a beautiful woman as anybody, but what I would find even more beautiful is a woman who's just out there, you know, wearing some weather appropriate clothing, getting the job done. And the, the problem that I have is that the people who are doing that aren't getting the credit that they deserve for how difficult that is in in today's climate. And the, the women who the women who are just going out and and doing it because they enjoy it and trying to share the message of of how enjoyable it can be and how important it is and how to do it right all all the good things they're being undervalued and it's one thing to talk about it for me i felt like i needed to do something about it and when i was at that ATA show last year i was i was upset at basically who i saw companies sponsoring in um, the direction that they're trying to, trying to present women in the outdoors and in the outdoor industry, and I didn't want women who are participants to look at that and think, "Okay, that's what I need to be," because I don't f- feel like there's going to be satisfaction for them in that endeavor. So I decided to create, you know, Women's Week and have all female ang- anglers and all female guides. And I wanted to go out and find women who wanted to be guides and had had some type of reason that, that that hadn't happened. And then just to make it possible, I wanted to find women who wanted to go fly fishing, but they didn't necessarily want to be taught from a guy. And it worked great. And, you know, this year, a lot of the ladies that that fished last year, you know, I've asked them, do you care if it's all female guides again or not? And they're like, some of them are like, yeah, I really like that. And some of them are like, no, I don't care at all. I'm just loving fly fishing now. And they've got this, they've got this new thing that they can do their entire life. Anywhere they, can, anywhere they go, they can fly fish. And they can do it two days before their deathbed because it's, it's a light-duty activity. Uh, and I'm, I'm really proud of, of what we're able to do and, and try and get those gals into it. And I, I want to do more, and I want to encourage other people to do more.
1: I just get out and down and dirty, if you will, and enjoying the experience, uh, just like, you know, just like we would, um, uh, yeah, because we're not Daisy Duke in it and there's no need to represent it that way. It just, I don't know. I appreciate it too, from a visual standpoint, but yeah, it, uh, I, I feel like it belittles the experience for them and yeah, just not a fan of it, man. Not a no,
2: it, it's me. just, it, it's not, it's not fair to anybody. It's really not.
1: So challenge it a little bit, right? The outdoors women that are participating in that type of posting. What do we, where, where should they draw the line? You know, I mean, that's a, that's a rough one for us to answer, right? Because we're not in that position, but, but why take part in that?
2: I think there's all kinds of reasons why they would want to and there's all kinds of reasons why they wouldn't want to. And if they, if they choose that, that that's the way they want to present themselves and be known um, that's okay. But they also need to understand that it's okay if they don't, you know, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be a lot more impressed with a gal who can go out to the river and kick a rock and look at the bugs that come out Reach into a fly box, grab the right fly, tie it on on an, another on another gal's line, and and then effectively instruct her on how and where to cast, and you know they can catch a fish together. Like this this is an incredible accomplishment if they can put all that together, and that's a lot bigger accomplishment than pulling some shorts up your ass. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that I laugh about it, but yeah, that's accurate statement for sure. Um Okay, we'll we'll peel out of that rabbit hole real quick because I'll get going on that, man, and it, it just yeah, sends me down a whirlwind. So back to elk hunting real quick, man. Let's talk elk hunting. <laughs> plan, implement, and plan some more. That's how I see hunting. Um, I don't go in with, this is the only way I could do it. I've learned my lessons, you know, by trying to stick to a plan. Um, yeah, it's great to map it out, but you better be able to adapt and rethink that plan. If it's, if you're falling on your face, um, give us some, some pointers or some backgrounds on, on first strategizing, um, say it's an out of state hunt and then, you know, implementing that plan and when should we be healing off of it
2: well no plan survives first contact and that that slogan is true in military conflict in boxing in in basically anything and it's certainly true in elk hunting so if you go out there and you're like okay here's what's gonna happen Mm -hmm. i'm gonna walk down this ridge and i'm gonna throw out a location bugle and he's gonna bugle back and then i'm gonna get close and i'm gonna cow call and then he's gonna give me an invitation bugle. And then I'm going to give him a challenge bugle. And then he's going to run over to 20 <laughs> yards, turn broadside. And I'm going to shoot him right where captain Nash told me to. And he's going to walk 10 steps and die. And then we're going to throw him in some caribou bags and uh, tow him, him home. And we're, yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's the plan. And that's a great plan. It really, really is. However, comma pause for effect. Shit. Don't go down like that. Every time be cool. If it did once, I will say, I will say one time, I went out and I, there was a bull that I knew about. I found him in the morning. I watched him with his cows. I watched where he went to bed. I hiked for four and a half hours to get in position. And I got about 70 yards away and I went near. And he gave me this weak ass bugle and I challenged him. And I took 10 steps forward. And I put my release on my bow and he walked out and I shot him at seven yards. Biggest bull I've ever killed. Within, and I had a buddy that was like a hundred yards behind me. And he goes, I can't believe that just happened. And I was like, well, you know, it was only going to happen once in my life if it happened Amazing. at all. And now it's over <laughs> with. So I can just, yeah, abandon hope of of that ever working again. I think that plans have to be dynamic and it's important to have plans, but it's it's important to have plans that, um, that are sort of like a, like a choose your own adventure novel. Like if this, if this happens, then I'm going to go this way. And if this happens, then I'm going to go this way. Your plan isn't, this is the way I'm going to go. So being able to identify those, those, pardon me, those trigger points for, for when your plan needs to start adapting to, to what's currently happening, that's something that's going to come, with education and experience, um, and and don't don't force it, but be willing to be decisive. Don't let your feet press down on the same part of the ground for too long, and uh, and be willing to abandon your plan if it's not working.
1: So, with those plans, what are what's the importance of knowing more, right? Because so so you know, like I said, going into elk last year for the first time a lot of what i was looking at and 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 hearing a lot of it focuses solely on calling right calling strategies and when you start going down that wormhole i mean it is a black hole of oblivion um to understand i mean it's not enough just to just to be able to bugle right to understand what you're saying um what kind of cow or what? excuse me what kind of call you should be using whether you know are they answering to this? What are they saying? That, that, that output in that return and, and dissecting that return. Um, but that's all I really saw was call, 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 call. How important is to, is it to understand, you know, what they're feeding on and the time of year and temperature and where they should be at on the mountain? What are we missing with this? You know, the new endeavor of elk.
2: Okay. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and answer this, and if you feel like I'm getting off track, stop me, okay?
1: I'm not going to stop you because anything you have to say about elk after all the years of experience needs to be
2: heard. So, the the task of an infantryman in the Marine Corps is to locate, close with, and destroy the enemy. And the reason that that is such a small and, and tidy statement is because... You need something that's short and easy to remember when when shit's getting western. And with elk, it's not too much different. So we need to locate them, we need to get close with them, and we need to shoot them and then get them home again. Locating elk is, is, is not all that hard if you utilize resources. And when I'm talking about utilizing resources, I'm talking about reading books, listening to podcasts, talking to the game biologist in the area that you plan on hunting. And when I say talk to him, I don't mean call the guy who's probably also an elk hunter and be like, hey, man, where can I go shoot a 360 bull? I mean, say, hey, what elevation can I expect elk to be at in this area given the amount of snowpack you had this year? Where where do the cows have calves? If you can find out where the cows calve, that's where the bulls are going to rut. Because the cows will be in that area or slightly higher in elevation than that area come the rut. It's just the way they work. Um, So, you know, a lot of people want to know where bulls are in the summer. That doesn't do them any good because that's not where the bulls are in the fall. So that's a little bit on location. Um, Locating elk specifically once you're there, calling it is a... is a very effective tool for doing that. I recommend locating bulls at night. Uh they're much more vocal at night. They're much more comfortable. So if you dedicate a little bit of time um, you know, at between 10 o'clock and two o'clock in the morning, you you can find some bulls and they're gonna be right where you left them the next day. If you have to come back in two days, they're they're gonna be right there. They're they're pretty close by unless they've been blown up by other hunters or a grizzly or wolves or something like that. That that's the unknown. That's always gonna happen. Um so much of the L game is about maneuver. And that was my biggest lesson that I learned this year was that the way we moved and the speed that we moved was more important than anything. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to move fast. I talked with uh Wayne Carlton for a while at, at ATA and I asked him um, because I'd heard him mention once that. Patience was the biggest thing that he'd gained over the years and the thing that he wished he had had as a younger man. And when he killed his big 400-inch bull, he told me that the only reason he killed that bull was because he was played out and he couldn't go any farther. And that if he'd still had the legs, he would have walked away and he'd never have had that opportunity. Well, on the second day of archery season this year, I was checking game cameras on my motorcycle and I wrecked and broke my foot. I was like, well, I can't not guide. I can't not elk hunt. So I just went and got a stiffer boot and laced that bitch up and did my job. And now my foot's shaped funny. But it caused me to go a lot slower than I maybe would have otherwise. And it was because my mind was on speed so much. It was much more easy for me to think about whether my speed was was the factor in in improving our chances of getting close to elk or hurting them. And there were a lot of times this year where we got into elk because I simply couldn't go as fast as I wanted to. But moving around is so much more important. One thing that I will say about the way elk hunting is presented in media, whether that's a television show or a YouTube channel or a hunting video, a video of a guy walking is not exciting to watch. A video of a guy calling is exciting, and what they're selling you is entertainment, more so than education. And you have to understand that. The calling is overemphasized, and the elk, and I'm sure you experience this too, they make some weird noises that you wouldn't think that an elk would make. Uh, so don't don't worry too much about your calling, but spend a lot more time thinking about your setup and how to get into position. And then from there, most elk are lost during the draw cycle. So a lot of elk come into archery range and present a shot. This happens to a huge number of hunters. And I think one of the really cool things about archery elk hunting is that it gives people an opportunity at some point during the season. But most people mess it up between where they start to draw their bow and full draw. So be very, very selective about when you draw your bow because people tend to either do it too early or too late. And if you do it too early, then you're wore out by the time you get a shot shot opportunity. And if you do it too late, then the elk has already walked through or has seen you or something else has gone wrong. So, you know, just just be really, really cognizant of when to draw your bow and that's going to be your greatest key to success. If you draw your bow too soon, or actually when you, when you draw your bow and and an elk is still coming in, don't look through the peep. Don't start aiming because aiming your bow is incredibly exhausting. So if you're looking through your peep at your pin and you know, you're moving with the elk or you're holding over the shooting lane, you're going to wear out in a few seconds. And you'll hear a lot of guys be like, Oh, I was drawn for a minute. And then you watch a video or you talk to the dude that was behind him and be like, ah, it was closer to 10 seconds. It felt like a minute, but it really wasn't that long. So if you if you just draw your bow and then you keep your hand a little bit low and you're just holding it at full draw, that's how you can hold your bow back for a long time. Um, And then when it gets close, you have an inch to move that peep up to your eye, settle the pin, and pull through the shot and execute. Did I, answer, did I
1: answer the question? Yes, yes, you did. So, uh, yeah, I did a, a minute and 45 Whew. last year, right? I'm, I'm drawing 70 pounds, and that was absolutely one of the keys is I had an opportunity as he went behind uh, some trees and his eyes weren't on me to get at draw, so I had to seize that opportunity. But the key to it, just like you said, was me not going into that peep until the shot actually presented itself, and and what I did That's is I very just, smart. I anchored, you know, like I should, and I kept my I kept my bow just. I, I think my looking at it, I was probably eye level to my my top cam, um, and that was the only reason I was able to hold for that long. And even in that position, I was probably at full draw through the peep at maybe twenty five to thirty seconds. And I was fighting the letdown, right? It was trying to yank me back in, yank me back in, and 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 it's actual because I got it on film, and I was able to go, how long was I at draw? And I actually, you know, had the mark on that. But yeah, that is absolutely the key: is not to be looking through that peat, man.
2: You are a strong man, and I'm I'm not just talking about physically strong, but mentally. That is incredible. That is absolutely incredible. Good for you. Yeah, thank you.
1: Thank you. I was I was pretty proud of it. <laughs> pretty proud of it, man. I watched that film and I'm like, whoa. And that's one of the things that, you know, time someone sees it, they go, how the hell did you hold it full draw that long? And that was, like I said, that was absolutely the key is I wasn't sitting there trying to aim at something that I never had a shot on. It just doesn't make sense.
2: I'll, 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 throw out another archery tidbit for people, um, that, that might help them. We're, we're, we're lazy people. All of us are like, we're, we seek efficiency by our nature and that's how we survive. And when people draw their bow, they'll, they'll get to full draw and they'll get in that valley and they'll, they won't pull into the wall and they'll try and relax and hang out in that point where it's easy to hold back. Um, and our minds have tricked us into thinking that that is the easiest way to go, but I promise you, and I I want people to try this. If you pull back and then you pull into the wall and you maintain pressure into the wall, your accuracy will improve dramatically. Yes, sir.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So misconceptions, uh, with elk hunting um, misconceptions and overrated tactics. You kind of said, you know, the calling, um, but what are, what are some more key points, man?
2: Well, to be clear, I think the calling is very important, but it's not the most important thing. You know, your, your location in relation to the elk is the most important thing. Um, and that is dependent on wind and terrain and vegetation. Wind wind is huge. I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that a cover scent can help you. Ain't doing nothing. It's not doing anything. It's not doing a, a, a damn thing besides costing you money. If, if you don't believe me, if you're shaking your head right now, that's fine. If, if that cover scent is giving you confidence, then keep doing it. I want you to keep doing it. But you have to know that the way odorants occur... It, it, it's not. it'd be like, you know, if you put like a pine cover scent on or something like that, I don't care, bubble gum, whatever, whatever turns you on. Um, and you're trying to cover up your smell with that to an elk. That would be like if somebody, you know, spilled a bunch of salt on your eggs and then tried to disguise the salt with pepper. It doesn't work like that. They They encounter these smells as individuals. So if an elk were to, to smell a sandwich the way you bite a sandwich, you know, it doesn't taste like a, like a BLT. To, to them, they smell bread, mayonnaise, bacon, lettuce, and tomato as individuals. Um, so just, just a little bit about the way odorants actually occur. And if, if you want to improve your, your hunting game with a single book, read Predator prey dynamics, the role of olfaction and that it's an expensive book. It's going to be less expensive than a lot of the gear you buy. I promise you that, but my goodness, it will help you understand the way wind and scent work and why animals go where they go and when they go there um, better than anything else I've ever encountered predator prey dynamics
1: who who wrote
2: that do you know i i can't remember the name of the author um and it's it's it, it's a bit sciency but anybody can read it and, and get stuff from it it's truly amazing and it's changed the way i think about ecology in general and i've heard a thousand people tell me a story about you know, they, they got close to this elk, he was coming in, and they felt the wind on the back of their neck, and he turned around and left, right? Have you ever heard that story? Uh, yeah, a million times. Sure. So let me present this. Maybe that elk was there because of the wind characteristics of that area. Because if scent is his primary defense, he doesn't want to be in a place that only gets wind from 180 degrees, because that means he's half blind. But if he, if he's in an area where the wind switches and he's there at a time of day when the wind switches, he can become 360 degrees aware of that area. How do we fight that? We fight that by dedicating our um, our thoughts to understanding wind. And if you can understand how wind works and why it works, then you can you can start to begin to predict it at a whole new level. And we're smarter than elk, and we have more tools available for learning than elk do, but their instincts are sharper than ours. and And that's where the balance has has to tip in our favor is we have to use our tools and use our intelligence to begin to understand wind better because if you understand only wind, if if that's the only thing you can understand, then you're going to be more effective as an elk hunter than people who understand calling and elk behavior and vegetation and, you know, any other aspect of it. But if somebody knows exactly what the wind is doing, they can simply walk out in the elk woods and be successful every time. So that takes us
1: full circle to plan, implement, plan some more, right? I mean, we strategize and we'll, you know, you get on Google or Onyx or whatever, um, and you spend a lot of time looking at terrain and uh yeah it may hold but those those are all factors and for me i'm a i always get shit from my buddies because you know we'll pack in and i kid you not man i have two two wind checkers in my bino harness and probably four more in my pack and it is
2: non-stop
1: watching that wind i'm a huge wind guy
2: do you ever use the little floater things instead of the poofy bottles Yeah, I actually clip,
1: see, I don't want to, I'm going to sound ridiculous and I'll probably get more shit for it. So on top of the wind checkers, I got the feather on the, uh, the feather on my bow (laughs) sitting out on my stabilizer
2: and I'll lift that up and watch it. So there's, there's a few companies that make these, um, but you can get down feathers and, and put them in a little pill bottle or whatever. Um, but there's some companies that make ones that are, I think milk, milk seeds, milkweed seeds. Yeah. Milkweed Oh my gosh, that is such a better wind indicator. Um, and I've, I've done it side by side a lot with a poofy bottle and you can only see that stuff for a couple feet. Mm-hmm. But if you kick one of those little seeds into the air, you get to watch it go for a hundred yards and you can see how that wind actually carries and what the vegetation does to it and the way um, the way a tree's turbulence changes how that scent goes. It is amazing, amazing how much more you learn from that.
1: You can't, I mean, I don't care what you're chasing, right? Elk, deer, pigs, the wind, and, and knowing what it's doing is invaluable in that pursuit.
2: Well, an elk can literally identify 10 times the number of scents as we can identify colors. So, so think about it from a visual perspective. Like we feel like we're fairly aware of our environment based on our ability to see Mm -hmm. things, right? So imagine that we had 10 times that capability. It would be phenomenal. And that is the way an elk perceives his world just in scent.
1: I'm I'm writing stuff down, man. It's just pearls.
2: (laughs) so that that's what people have to get better at is is getting their setup right understanding the wind never hide behind a damn tree for the love of god please don't ever do that again hide in front of a tree that's why we wear camouflage i can't i i'm just gonna if you see me stroke out at a film festival sometime it's going to be because i watched. Some dude hiding behind a juniper tree in New Mexico, and an elk came up, and he didn't get a chance to shoot it. (laughs) (laughs) I I can't take. I can't take it anymore.
1: That's a that's a hard lesson, and and I'm laughing because I'm laughing at it because it's something that I've done, not necessarily on elk, but I've been there on pigs, I've been there on mule deer, and it is (laughs) the worst damn feeling in the world to go. What did I do wrong? But the realization, it, it takes a minute for you to even gain that right i mean it's like well i was i was hidden right you're not thinking about it and it's like look right in front of that tree man stand in front of that bush that pattern you're wearing is supposed to break you up into what's behind you not hide behind that if that was the case go out and you know go out and get within 20 yards in a bright uh, a bright orange vest
2: yeah if we could shoot through trees it would be great but we can't
1: <laughs> so overlooked aspects of elk hunting what, what are things that are overlooked that we're not looking at, that we're not seeing, that we're not gathering um, from, you know, be it the media or just, you know, in general, in your experience?
2: Biggest, biggest overlooked one um, is that you can get access to private land. Like you, you can have a conversation with a landowner, offer them something and then just ask, and they might say no. But they might say yes, and then you're the only one out there hunting, and you're having a great time. And when you shoot the thing, the guy can roll out there with a backhoe and help you, you know. Uh, another overrated thing is calling at night. And you don't want to hunt nights too too much because you're going to hunt days, too, and you'll just burn out. But calling at night is super critical. Uh, leaning on biologists, making phone calls – If there's anything you want in this world and you make seven phone calls and you haven't gotten the information, um, I would be very surprised. Because we're a very, very connected society with access to a lot of information. And if six people can't kick you in the direction of the person you need to talk to, um, then you've asked the wrong question. Uh, So, yeah, just... You know, talking to people don't don't necessarily just rely on Instagram and YouTube and and the outdoor channel to to gain your base of knowledge. Um, and and be willing to ask individuals. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people that that won't write back to you. I'm not one of them. If I I respond to absolutely everybody that has a question about hunting, I'll 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 help anybody that asks. So I'm, I'm always there as a resource and a lot of other people are too.
0: So um,
1: that's a lot of elk. That's a lot to decipher. Um, I'm going to tangent us real quick and give us, give us a state of the union, right? We're talking to President Captain James Nash. Um, give us a state of the union address when it comes to your take on The hunting community, social media versus the contrast to what this lifestyle really is?
2: Well, for one thing, um, I like social media and I live in a really remote place. Uh, I've got some great friends here, but I've got a lot of great friends in other places. And if it weren't for social media, I would be very disconnected from them. And I've gained more from it than I've lost. And I won't say at all that there's, that there's, uh, Nothing negative about it. There's a tremendous amount that's negative about it. But there's a lot of good as well. And and for me, the way I use it, the good outweighs the bad. I think people need to be a little bit more positive um, and and try and think about solving problems rather than instigating them. And one of the reasons that, that my social media stays so positive is because I cull aggressively if somebody wants to be a dick i can have them blocked in half a second i don't i don't need that in my life um and that that keeps everything clean but with the hunting industry we're we're at a place technologically that is both good and bad uh we're at a place with with archery equipment where there's not a lot of room for progress or improvement you know the capabilities of a Persian recurve from three thousand years ago have not been doubled by today's bow arrows are largely the same uh, rifles and ammunition you can buy a $350 rifle that will shoot less than an than an inch at a hundred yards with factory ammunition and if you go back ten years you had to spend $2,500 to build that rifle, and you had to make that ammunition yourself. So we're just at a place where, where technology has brought our gear to a level where it's performing very high, but the people that make this gear are a little bit jammed up because they don't have a lot of room to improve. So in order to stay competitive, they're utilizing marketing techniques that can be a little bit misleading. And that brings you to a point where you have to start thinking about which company um, stands for something that you want to support, because everybody's making something good. Uh, so ethics and morality become increasingly important today. But what do you think? I'm I'm curious about your thoughts on this.
1: On my question to you, <laughs> yeah. So, for me, man. I- you know, and 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 I'm going to refer to you at posted. I think it was yesterday, right? Ten words, um, on why you hunt, and that's kind of the reason I asked you that question. Because for me, it is the marketing part of it. I I get it, right? It, it it is what it is. That's what we're that influences everything we do on a daily basis. But to me, getting past all that bullshit and just enjoying the fact that there is. This opportunity in front of us to go hunt, to enjoy the outdoors, to enjoy the camaraderie. And in my opinion, some of the greatest people you'll ever meet are outdoors men and women. Um, so I, I get the marketing part of it. I just want to see us on a whole as a community understand that the marketing is just a tool right to go and get us to buy that just like you're saying right they they have to show they have to step into you know these lines or 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 draw this divide um for a company i i get it but the community at at large is really what i appreciate outside of my hunting experience i don't know if that answers your question or not but
2: well it it was it was your question and i think you did answer it nicely I agree. There are some really, really great people in this industry um, and, and they care a lot and they, Mm -hmm. but they also care in ways that they don't completely understand. And I want to, I want to throw something out there for you and, and for everybody, but conservation as a word gets kicked around so much. And everybody says, hunting is conservation. And they say, oh, we are a conservation organization and we do conservation. But I I frequently challenge people to tell me what conservation means. And some people can say, well, to me, conservation means like, no, no, no. It's a word, word words mean things. What does it mean? And it's simple, it, it, it's really easy. So here it is conservation is the prevention of wasteful use of a resource that is it so if you're a conservationist then you're trying to prevent the wasteful use of a resource and that's a great thing to be but you have to know what it is if that's what you're going to do
1: and that that Webster diction or definition if you will um can take on a meaning of its own for everyone, right? I mean, it it, it the end of result. Course. If that end result is that definition, right? And that's what I challenge people to do. I and I'm like I said, I'm sure you heard it, right? My little conservation quick. And for me, it's not, hey, prove what you're doing, but it's just to spawn a thought process and and understand, hey, what does it mean to you? You know, with that definition, you know, it's a big deal for me. Part of it is, you know, preserving or conserving, you know, the hunt, if you will, right, is carrying this on for future generations um, and making sure that we're cognizant of, you know, not wasting and not, you know, killing just to kill. You know, being being proactive and, and taking a taking a look at what we're doing as hunters and outdoorsmen and women.
2: And I, I think that conservation doesn't go far enough and preservation certainly doesn't. So preserving is like, we're just keeping what we've got. Conserving is, is we're going to try and keep people from, from making this worse. But what we really have to think about is improvement. Because the only way to, to, to make this happen when we have a growing population is to improve habitat, improve access and to improve understanding and ethics and everything that goes into this. Hell
1: yes. (laughs) I love it, man. I love it. So projects, media, uh, what should be, we, uh, excuse me, watching out for, uh, from six rants and, and captain James Nash.
2: Um, so I'm, I'm going to do a wolf project this year. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go, uh, spend a few weeks in Idaho, trapping, Trapping and hunting wolves, because uh, the the best available science right now says that uh, moose might go up extinct in Idaho in the next few years if we don't do something about it. Uh, you know, elk herds are, are in a bad way. the The distribution of elk across all the wolf areas of the Intermountain West um, is is shoving elk out of the mountains and onto private lands where often people don't have access to hunt them. And, uh, and then those elk are causing damage for the landowners. So every, everyone's losing, inclu- including the elk and the wolves in this scenario. So we're, we're going to do a little wolf project this fall. I'm kicking around the idea of doing a, a three-day comprehensive and immersive elk hunting seminar here on the ranch. If I get get some interest from that, then we'll do it, and we'll we'll take people through through every aspect of it and do some simulated elk hunting in the summer so they can test out their their gear and their knowledge and and still have time to be able to fix it before it's go time. um I'm gonna be at uh, some of the total Archery challenge events. Uh, I'm gonna go to the one in Utah and the one in Montana, and will be working with uh with Leopold on, uh, on those. And I really want to help people understand, uh, angles and range finding and some of the aspects of shooting, which kind of gets overemphasized. But I think that a lot of the practice that people do isn't realistic to what they actually encounter in the woods. And I know you've talked about that with, with fitness, um, where people can be very, very fit in a gym, but they're not necessarily capable of, of being fit in a way that's meaningful for moving them around in, in a wilderness area yes, sir. so i'm, I'm going to help people on that if they're at those events with with shooting other than that we're just going to keep doing what we're doing and uh and try and be an educational resource and take people fishing and hunting and hopefully uh work ourselves out ourselves out of a job by teaching everybody how to hunt and fish
1: (laughs) i i don't think uh you got to worry about that at all and uh, i lose you no no i'm here i'm here i'm here
2: yeah i i got you
1: dropped off a couple times there my apologies um so i want to uh you've been on several podcasts so uh cody rich um the rich outdoors is a regular what is the other Uh, bow camp down under i believe it is why don't you give us a few that you've been on man because i think uh everyone listening um you're a valuable resource man so i'd like to get that and they can hear you know you did some predator management stuff and if you could drop a few of those yeah
2: um so in the last year i've been on uh on the rich outdoors a couple times great podcast um i was on tangentially speaking which is a guy named chris ryan and you know, he mostly talks about sex, but we talked about hunting. Uh, he's, he's from SoCal as well. Uh, live to hunt and fish outdoors or live to hunt and fish podcast. They're, they're out of Portland. Uh, they're a young podcast. that's doing some really good stuff. Hunting camp down under. I love my Aussie brothers. Um, and, uh, and I'm, I'm really excited about your podcast, man. You've got such a great voice. Um, you know, you're, <laughs> you're you're speaking you're you're speaking intelligently and fairly on a on a wide number of subjects but um i i've really enjoyed listening to your podcast and okay, uh, i'm man. eager to see where you go with it
1: yeah i appreciate that man who would have known i uh yeah i said hey i'm a star. I, I i'm a podcast junkie at this point right especially with the elk stuff last year and i have a buddy here in california uh anthony and he has legion ost and um, that's kind of what spawned it, man. And to hear this, you know, I, am sure you heard Jonathan, uh, call me radio. Uh, it's kind of funny to me, but yeah, who would have known, but yeah, I just love it, man. I, I think there's a lack of, and, and it's not a down to anyone else. Right. I, I just think there's a lack of storytelling, um, the campfire, if you will. Um, there's a lot of, you know, I, again, my opinion, and I'm not down in anyone, but the same thing. And there's so many people, the diversity in, in the hunting community is just phenomenal. And to hear those stories, man, it, it's just really opened my eyes and heart to, to something, you know, way bigger than, than my little podcast. So it's awesome. I appreciate that, uh, that accolade, man. That's awesome.
2: Well, it's, it's a wonderful way for us to make each other stronger. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that I'm glad that you're helping with yeah. it. Yeah. Thank you, man.
1: Well, we'll wrap it up, man. We're just about at the two hour mark. I'm anticipating, not that I'm rushing off, but I'm anticipating my wife's return from visiting our daughter up north, um, and I think she came in a, about an hour and a half ago, so I'm looking forward to seeing her. I haven't seen her beautiful face in a couple of days, man. I appreciate your time greatly, um, and hopefully we can uh, get together and do this again and share some more stories and tips, tactics, and then if, uh, are you going to be at Northwest Mountain Challenge at all? The the shoots they have at, in uh, Oregon up in the Pacific Northwest?
2: I don't have a plan to be there. But uh, if if I end up getting the availability, I'll certainly go. And, you know, I ho- hope to see you there. If not, you know, let's let's go. Let's go hunting together. Let's
1: go, man. I'm 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 there. I'll pack out your meat. I'll just go along for the experience and learn, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to make it to that total archery challenge. So if, if I get there, I'll uh, I'll definitely be coming up to shake your hand, man. I appreciate you
2: sounds good and thank you again for your time yes sir thank you
1: you can catch up with james on instagram at six ranch outfitters or at his website www.sixranchoutfitters.com thank you for listening Follow and tag us on Instagram at Western Contours. Jump on iTunes, Google Play, and Podbean. Subscribe, leave us a comment, and don't forget to hit that five-star rating. We appreciate the support, and until next time, lay them down.
2: Hi, this is Weston Jenkins with Disabled Outdoorsman founder of an organization where we choose and let individuals come in the outdoors. We have many people across the nation that refuse to give up, and our brand is going to represent them, and now you can too. You can go to our website at www.disabledoutdoorsman.com, or you can find us on Instagram at disabledoutdoorsmanusa. We want you to be a part of the cause with us, and let's
0: make a difference one day at a time.